welcome to our 15th episode of Life Between the Notes. Our sponsor for this episode is the Elizabethtown College Summer Music Camp, which provides an exciting week for young musicians to spend making music, making new friends, and creating fond memories. The camp is a week-long overnight experience from July 16th to the 22nd in 2023 for students entering grades 7 through 12 who perform on voice, piano, string instruments, wind instruments, and percussion. Campers spend a week immersed in various music-making opportunities, including ensembles, masterclasses, music theory, and performances. In the evening, there are group activities like the annual Camper and Counselor Talent Show. For more details and to register, please visit www.etown.edu slash programs slash music dash camp. The Elizabethtown College Music Camp proudly supports Faith Shippers episode of Life Between the Notes. Welcome everyone to Life Between the Notes, where we are going beyond the bio and bringing you interviews of your favorite South Central Pennsylvania musicians. I'm Kirsten Myers, a local oboist living in the Lancaster area, and with me today is Morgan Davis, a local flutist also in the Lancaster area. So hello, Morgan. Hello. How are you? I think I'm good. <laughs> I almost asked how your cats were before I asked how you were, but you how, <laughs> how are the cats? The cats are excellent. <laughs> the cats yeah. are off napping. Oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Disinterested in, in everything I'm doing. <laughs> so are mine. I even, I'm sitting here like an old lady with a blanket on my lap, just hoping that a cat comes up and jumps on it. Right. It's an invitation. <laughs> it is. <laughs> So, do, and do you have your coffee? I have coffee. I have co I have water too, because I realized I haven't had any water yet today and it's like, you know, noon. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, and you, you had yoga this morning too, right? Yeah, I taught yoga this morning. So now here's my question for you is when you have coffee after yoga, does that um, have adverse effects to the, the yoga that you just did? or does it enhance it I think so I don't I, I don't get like if I have it afterwards I don't get super jittery but if I have it before if I'm practicing it's fine if I'm trying to teach it's not great oh. <laughs> everything goes you know faster and um maybe the pacing suffers a little right. so I try not to drink like the whole thermos before class <laughs> right okay well that that makes sense yeah okay <laughs> so today uh, we are ex so excited to have local clarinetist and saxophone player Faith Schiffer joining us. Uh, Faith is one of the coolest people you'll meet. And before we talk to her, uh, we're going to talk about her. Um, so and right in front of her as she sits there. So, <laughs> so Faith is the adjunct instructor of clarinet and saxophone at Elizabethtown College. As a woodwind specialist, she has toured nationally with musical productions of Sunday in the Park with George, Chicago, and South Pacific. Locally, she has performed with the following, Harrisburg Symphony, Theater Harrisburg, Pride of the Susquehanna Riverboat Band, Reading Civic Opera, the Buzz Jones Big Band, the Spring Garden Big Band, the Cat's Pajamas Dixieland Band, the Pretzel City Jazz Band, Dixieland Express, wow, this is quite the list. The Schiffer Trio, the, is it Osaya? Oh, oh, okay, Osaya Duo, the Hot Walkers, Rue de la Pompe, mm -hmm. 
the the Tom Pons Project, the Roaring Twenties Orchestra, Allen Berry Theater, Hershey Area Playhouse, Mount Gretna Theater, Servant Stage, Effort Performing Arts Center, and the Fulton Theater. Faith continues to perform throughout central Pennsylvania and maintains a private teaching practice in Stevens, PA. So with that, Faith, we are so happy to have you join us today. And thank you for saying yes. Thank you for having me. We appreciate it. And I'm sorry to inform you both, but I do not own a cat. Oh. But I do <laughs> have a little bear. <laughs> oh, that works. That works. Cats are encouraged, but not required. <laughs> yes. And and little little yeah, stuffed bears, I guess, would be a lot less maintenance than the cats are. <laughs> well, he keeps me company on long Zoom meetings. Yes. <laughs> Which well, we've all had plenty of. <laughs> well, when you're hearing your student slaughter the D flat major scale, what better thing is there to do than to look at your bear? <laughs> right. It's like a therapy bear, right? <laughs> yes. Or one of those squeeze balls, right? Oh, I mean, he works for that too. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's perfect. Really bad scale. <laughs> Wow, I think I need something like that. I know I'm I'm debating my choices now. I'm questioning yeah. myself. <laughs> so, um, Faith, uh, so you currently live in Lancaster County. Um, have you always lived here? I have not. Okay, so where did you grow up, or where were you born? Well, I moved seven times before I even went to college. So. Just for the sake of brevity, we'll just keep right. it uh, the places where I was, as opposed to the addresses where I was. That's right. <laughs> we don't so need all that information. I was born in Butte, Montana, and then we moved to a very small community in South Dakota called Miller, and we lived there for about three years, and then we moved to Grand Forks, North Dakota, and I lived there for seven years. Then we moved back to Montana, but we moved to Missoula, and I went to high school there. And then my parents moved back to Butte when I started college at Millican University in Decatur, Illinois. And then after I was done at Millican, uh, I went to the University of Northern Colorado mm -hmm. and on and on and on. But we'll, we'll learn more about all the other geography later. <laughs> yeah. I did eventually get to Pennsylvania in 1995. Wow. That's, that's amazing. No. So um, we're, were you a military family or was it just? just uh, my father was a banker and okay. we got transferred a lot. Oh, okay. He was in the banking industry and we just, uh, he would get a okay. different position in a new place and we would pick up and move. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So what was that like for you? Like, did you find that to be difficult or you just kind of, you went with the flow? Well, I think as a child, you don't know any different. Um, the, the thing that I found most frustrating is that it was hard to keep friends because you would yeah. make friends and then you would move. So, mm -hmm. um, right. You know, I think that was probably my biggest frustration. But um, mm -hmm. I often tell people I came from one of those really strange families where my parents met, fell in love, had children and stayed together. So, yeah. you know, um, I was able to live in a very stable upbringing and stable family, a very loving, you know, but uh, yeah, the moving yeah. had its challenges. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so you have siblings? I have a sister. Yeah. You have a sister. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Cool. Yeah. All right. Um, so when did you start 
playing the clarinet or did you start with the saxophone or something else? Actually, I started with the piano. Okay. I was uh, eight years old and uh, my parents got me a piano for my birthday. And this is kind of a fun story. Uh, of course, when parents are starting out their children with music, they're not sure if they want to make the financial commitments involved. And so my mom found in something comparable to the shopping news or the penny saver, you know, one of the classifieds, uh, that there was a piano for sale for $15. So she called up the piano tuner in the area and said, well, you know, am I taking a risk buying this piano for $15? And the piano tuner said, lady, the wood in the piano is worth $15. <laughs> okay, so uh, they bought me the piano and we ended up uh, refinishing it and we painted it white and gold. Yeah, oh, wow. yeah, I love that. Yep, that was my first instrument, was my piano when I was eight years old. That is so cool. And then, and then you were like a part of actually making it yours too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got to help paint it. Yeah, it didn't it play did. very well in tune, but I didn't care, I was eight. Well, yeah. Yeah, what's in tune? My son asked me the other day, why did to about his cello? Why does this have to be in tune? I'm like, because it does. It sounds better. I don't. <laughs> but to a ten year old, like, who cares? <laughs> so, so now you didn't do that with your clarinet when you got it, did you? Well, the clarinet is another story. Okay. Um. So, so I, I, go ahead. No, when did you start that? The clarinet started uh, the summer after fourth grade mm -hmm. and I picked the clarinet because it was the loudest instrument I could hear a girl playing and I wasn't allowed to play the drums I already knew the drums were off limits couldn't do them because I banged <laughs> on everything around the house with my tinker toys anyway right. <laughs> so, um, my mom was like you're gonna give me a nervous wreck so mm -hmm. and I think looking back on it I picked the clarinet because I could tell it was the melody Mm -hmm. hear, you know, when you're hearing those elementary band arrangements, because it, it was the kids who were older than me at school that were playing. And uh, I think I was drawn to the clarinet because I could hear the melody. And so then lo and behold, I found out that my uncle had played the clarinet and he played a metal clarinet. It was all one piece except Ooh. for the mouthpiece and the reed. So for the first year, year and a half of my playing, I played on this metal clarinet. That was about a quarter step sharp to everybody else's plastic clarinets <laughs> until my parents uh, decided, yeah, she's pretty serious about this. Mm. So then they went ahead and got me the plastic clarinet. Wow. So when was it then you got your plastic clarinet? Sixth grade. Okay. So, so by the time you were in sixth grade, they knew that you, or you knew that you wanted to continue. Yeah, this was the deal. Right. Were you still playing the piano at that point? Did you keep yes. playing piano? I continued piano all the way through my undergraduate study at Millican. Yeah. yeah. I'm always curious because like I started playing piano when I was really little, I was like three um, and it was kind of by chance because my preschool teacher taught piano and, but I stuck it out, you know, all the way through. And then when I got to college, it was such an advantage that I had done that you know, because I could pass out of piano classes and I still really like to play. So I'm always curious if people keep keep it or they let it go, you know, when they find other instruments. 
Mm -hmm. Well, my uh, elementary school band director was also my junior high band director. And so by the time I had gotten to junior high, my parents knew I was pretty serious about music. And so my mom asked my band director, is there anything that we can do to help encourage her and support her as she um, learns more about music? And he told her, whatever you do, do not let her quit the piano. Yeah. So I'm very thankful for that. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. great advice. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And in some ways, like it's kind of just kind of the backbone um, to a lot of things, like when it comes to like theory and learning theory and yeah, just to have that visual of the keyboard. It just helps with a lot of things, <laughs> I think. Yeah, I just did that with a couple of my students this past week. Uh, they were struggling with the forms of the minor scale and trying to remember, you know, how did these steps work and all of this. And I said, tell you what, let's take a field trip over to the piano. <laughs> and we walked across the room and I showed them what the keys look like when you mm -hmm. change all of those different things in the minor scale and also based it more on harmony. How does the harmony change? And boy, the light bulb started going off then because they could yeah. see, even though they weren't piano majors, you know, right. it was just having that note representation visually in front of them. Mm -hmm. a huge yeah. difference. Yeah, I was, we really, I didn't know a lot of music theory before I got to college, but understanding the piano, I think was one of the things that kind of got me through my like initial, as I like started to learn theory and, and then feeling like I could keep up, you know, if I hadn't had that experience, I think it would have been really tough. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> so, so then they, they, your parents bought you the piano and then, but did they play any instruments? Or... <laughs> well, my mom likes to say that she held a French horn in high school marching band, and I think it was just that she wanted to be in the marching band, and so yeah. I'm not sure what level of proficiency she had. Mm -hmm. And my dad played the drums in grade school, but then he went on to become um, a spectacular athlete. He mm -hmm. was a baseball pitcher, and oh. so the, the band went kind of by the wayside because he yeah. was playing basketball and baseball. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's cool. Well, and it's good that they had like, some background to kind of like help you along, but um, so in sixth, by sixth grade, then you were kind of um, serious about it. And I, obviously that continued on when you were in high school, were you competitive? Um, like, did you go to festivals like around here? We have like the PMEA like district and um, you know, in county festivals and that kind of thing. Were you involved in that? Yes, I was involved in state festivals, both state orchestra and state band, but you do have to keep in mind that the population of Montana is much smaller than Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. So um, the way it would work is you would submit a cassette recording to just do states. Um, district band was band director referral, kind of similar to how counties are in some of the counties in this area. And so I went to district band one year, but then the other years I opted not to go because it was the same weekend as the AA Choral Festival. And I was also singing in the choir at that time. And I just felt like that was a more beneficial experience. So instead of doing district band, I would do the AA Choral Festival. But anyway, the, the state festival was by uh, recorded tape submission. So we're talking cassette tape. And so um, you would go into the band director's office and he'd hit record and you'd play what you were supposed to play. And then that was the moment he'd say, well, are we keeping that take? 
because <laughs> the way the tape worked was if you wanted to record it again, you could, but you would erase the recording that you just did. Mm -hmm. And I think that was to make sure that we weren't doing it umpty nine million times. So, oh, yeah. you know, uh, I would usually record the first time and go, no, nah, I can do it better. And I do it again. And hopefully it was a little better. And usually after that, you know, the more you try to record, usually the worse it's going to get. Second or third try, then, you know, submit the, the recording. And yeah, I was selected to go to state on, let me see here, state orchestra my sophomore year. I went to state band my junior year. And then I went to state orchestra my senior year. So, wow. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, I think most of the people who are listening know what cassette tapes are. Um, there, might, <laughs> there might be a few students who don't. <laughs> well, so, but I think it's what you said is still so true because when my, my students can record things as many times as they want. And I know that some of them will record them, you know, a bajillion times. And we always have this conversation. The more you do it, the worse it's going to get. The more distracted you are, the less energy you have to do it the way you want. You know, I'm always trying to find ways to convince them that you should do this in like two tries. That's what you've got. <laughs> so, um, but then I had to laugh too, because, you know, we're talking about cassette tapes, like they're ancient. Um, but when I went and did my college auditions, one of the schools no grad school one of the schools the professor wasn't there the weekend I went which of course they didn't tell me and I flew all the way there and you know I was like already like so mad about it but they recorded me on a cassette tape and that was in the 2000s wow. <laughs> I was so mad when I went home like I could have done that myself that probably mm -hmm. sounds terrible so anyway right. I had to laugh because you said well people know what they are but we're still <laughs> using them <laughs> there are a few there are a few so, um, so at what point did you know that you wanted to go into music as a career? Seventh grade. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Did Just you think loved it. you wanted to do what you ended up doing with it? Like, did you have an idea what, or you just knew you wanted to do something with music? I just knew I wanted to do something with music. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how I entered college actually. Mm -hmm. I, I knew it was going to be music, but I wasn't exactly sure how. Yeah. And I'm still figuring that out. <laughs> it's still evolving. All are. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, so then, where where did you go to undergrad? My undergraduate school was Millican University. It's in Decatur, Illinois, and it's midway between St. Louis and Chicago. Okay. All right. So yeah. small school. Yeah, it was uh, about 1800 students when I went there, mm -hmm. but um, the fine arts program was probably about a third of those students. Wow. Music, theater, dance, art. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it was okay. a liberal arts school and it is still a liberal arts school, but uh, very heavy concentration in the arts. Okay. And what uh, drew me to it was there are multiple degrees offered. Uh, for example, you could get a degree in jazz education, jazz music education, or you could get a degree in um, commercial music with a business minor emphasis. And, you know, there were all these different combinations. Uh, you could learn how to uh, record in the recording studio, which I realize there are institutions that offer all these things now. That's Back when I was looking at schools, there weren't so many that offered these different type of music degrees. So I just uh, was really attracted to all the possibilities. Yeah. Yeah. Ahead of their time. Mm -hmm. 
Was that the only place that you had applied? Had you applied to other um, schools or did you know you wanted to go there? Uh, I auditioned at Oberlin in Ohio and they have an amazing facility and I really liked it, um, but I just didn't get the right vibe. And I often tell my students, you'll know in your gut when you're there, you'll get a feeling like, yeah, I think I could be here or no, I'm, I'm not gonna work out here. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. I asked one of the Oberlin students about the jazz band, and I don't know how it is now, but back at the time when I was looking at school, she said, oh, you mean when the guys get together and play for our parties? And I'm like, no, that's not a jazz program. <laughs> that's not, not going to fit the bill for me, you know, because even yeah. as a clarinet major, I've always had a, a huge interest in jazz and studying jazz music and you know, mm -hmm. wanted more educational opportunities for that. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and a lot of what you do now is is jazz when you're performing anyway um, with the groups that you perform with. Um, so your degree is in, uh, did you have a music education degree or was it performance? Yeah, my degrees are both clarinet performance. So I have a bachelor's of music and clarinet performance and I have a master's of music and clarinet performance. So I often tell people, especially the lay people, I'll say, well, I have two pieces of paper that say I play the clarinet, but I've learned how to do a few other things too. <laughs> <laughs> so where did you do your master's then? At the University of Northern Colorado in Oh, that's right. Okay. Right. Yep. Nice. And were you there? Back there? Towards the west. <laughs> right. Right. Well, Colorado is so beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Were you there for about two years? Two years, yeah. Yeah, they have uh, six jazz bands. So oh yeah. I was fortunate enough to play in lab one in my second year of graduate school. Mm -hmm. Wow. And it was a very valuable experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. So um, would you say like who throughout all of that time up to that point, like was there one teacher who was who stood out as maybe like your most influential teacher? Well, I think the one that I took the most guidance off of was actually my saxophone teacher at Millican. Uh, his name is Dr. Christopher Kelton. And uh, he highly recommended that I pursue playing in pit orchestras because I had a very strong interest in doubling. Um, I also play the flute. So um, I'm a single reed person, a flute, clarinet, saxophone, and so that made me highly marketable as a pit orchestra musician. And so at least the beginning of my performing career, that's primarily what I was doing, was I was playing in pit orchestras. Uh -huh. And now I tend to do um, a little bit of both. I do both the, the jazz playing and I play in pit orchestras, so. When did you pick up saxophone along the way? I was approached to play the saxophone when I was in the seventh grade. Uh, my band director said, I would like you to be in my stage band because it wasn't called jazz band back then. It was called stage band. And uh, you can either play the saxophone or the piano. And I thought, oh, well, I'll play the piano because I already know how to play the piano. And I went to rehearsal and I saw these letters with slashes and no notes and mm -hmm. it really freaked me out. I was like, I can't do this. So then I said to him, well, I tell you what, I think I'll go ahead and um, check out a school saxophone. And he said, yep, you teach yourself how to play it and then you can be in the stage band. <laughs> nice. Yeah. That's great. So, so when, then we're, 
Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to ask when you picked up the flute. I started the flute my sophomore year of high school because we were doing a Count Basie piece in jazz band that called for the flute double. And yeah. I wanted to play it on the flute instead of playing the flip side on the saxophone. Right. The arrangement. Yeah. So I was self-taught through high school, but then I was fortunate enough to study in college. Um, as a performance major, it gave me a lot of flexibility to right. study. Um, I had my piano secondary, a saxophone secondary, and a flute secondary. Wow. So I was able to, not all semesters with all the teachers, but mm -hmm. um, alternating the sax and the clarinet, or the sax and the flute, um, mm -hmm. I was able to get some, some flute study yeah there and i've picked up more since so, yeah yeah and it's so great that you were able to do that that mm -hmm. you were at a school where you were able to um study all of those instruments <laughs> and have the time to practice too yeah yes. right yeah right, right. Yeah, that's no, a lot of no one seems to have anymore right <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly oh that's that's awesome so so once you had um well, graduated from Northern Colorado, um, where were you headed then? Did you stay um, in Colorado? Well, that was a pretty scary time because uh, I knew that I needed a break from school. I had gone straight through. I got my bachelor's in the following year. I went to Greeley to get my master's and I knew I needed a break if I was going to continue on and get a doctorate. And yet I wasn't sure what was next. Um, I had been working summers between college uh, at a uh, repertoire theater in Montana. It's called the Big Fork Summer Playhouse, and they do four shows a summer. So I had uh, 20 shows under my belt, and I was going back for my fifth season, and that was what I knew. I was like, well, I'm going to go to Big Fork, and then we'll see what happens. Um, I was thinking about moving back to Colorado and just working and just um, still living with my current roommate. You know, we had an apartment and I thought, well, I'll just keep my ear to the ground for opportunities and really chew on this if I want to go back to Greeley for my doctorate or what I want to do. And a uh, real interesting story. Um, I was living in a dormitory at the Big Fork Summer Playhouse and there was one payphone in the basement. And we didn't have cell phones. This is before cell phone time. So one day I was downstairs just randomly being down there and the payphone rang and I picked it up and it wasn't for me, but Steph was on the other end and Steph knew me from working at Big Fork prior seasons. And uh, I mentioned to her, I said, well, I'm finishing up school. So if you hear about anything, let me know. And she said, well, as a matter of fact, I know the music director of the tour of Sunday in the, uh, Sunday in the Park with George, the national tour. Ah. So she was my connection. She introduced me to the music director and I sent recordings to him. And I ended up wow. selected to play on the first national tour of Sunday in the Park with George. That's, so cool. that's what I did after I was done at Big Fork. I flew to uh, the Quad Cities in Iowa where they were mounting the production and uh, started rehearsing with Sandy in the Park with George and I was on a bus and truck tour. Wow, that's amazing. That, like that's fate. <laughs> For something like that to happen. That's amazing. Yeah, and I, and I often tell students that it's going to be a different story for you because you're not going to answer a payphone that, <laughs> that was a call that wasn't meant for you. But like, what is a payphone? 
Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that was what we had. That's how we communicated with people. There was a payphone in the dorm and there was a payphone at the theater. And you would either use the one at, up where we were living or you'd walk down to the theater and you'd call from the lobby of the theater. Right. Wow. So what was that like? Go ahead. Now this was a national tour? It was a national tour. Yes. And how long did that run? We had two legs of the tour. So we started in September and we toured up until the holidays and then we were off for the holidays and then we resumed in late January and we toured through late March. So roughly five, six month tour. Right. Right. Wow. And so, and then how many shows a week would you would you do typically it would vary because with sunday in the park with george it was a lesser known musical um there are people who um just aren't as familiar with sondheim or with what the show was about or you know anything like that so you know sometimes we would have an eight show week but sometimes we might have a six show week mm-hmm. and there would just be more traveling involved you know and sometimes we would have what are called golden days which means you don't have a show and you don't have to travel. <laughs> and those were really fun because, you know, wherever you happen to be, like one day we were in Maine and we got to go to this restaurant and eat lobster, you know, because. Right. That's, yeah, yeah. And one time I was in Nevada and uh, most of the touring company had decided that they were going to gamble in Las Vegas. And three of us decided instead of spending the money on gambling, we'd go in on a rental car and we went to this beautiful place called the Valley of Fire. Mm. And it, it's like you're in the middle of a, a Roadrunner cartoon. Right. It's really cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so, and you've been on. A, f- a few other tours too, correct? Well, that's where I was going is that then the next year I got on the South Pacific tour and that one was nuts. Everybody wanted South Pacific. So we were doing like nine shows a week. Yeah. Just, yeah. Wow. And we would play a show and sometimes we'd have to get on the bus after the show in order to drive part of the way to get to the next venue because we'd have a matinee the next day and we'd have to get to the next place. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I often describe these tours, they're non-equity tours, which means um, there isn't any union involved. And so we would play one place and it was usually one night and then we would travel to the next destination and play one day and maybe two shows on that day and maybe one and then get on the bus and do it again. And you know, we had motels that we were staying in, but it was a lot of time on the bus. Yeah, that sounds exhausting. It yeah. was, it was. And so I often tell people, you know, if you have that kind of opportunity, do it when you're young and you don't have a lot of financial obligations or relationship commitments, mm-hmm. that's the time to do it because it's not going to get any easier. Right, right. So is there any state that you have never been in then? It seems to me that you probably have been to almost every state. but No, I didn't get to Alaska or Hawaii yet. Okay. So. But every place else and a few places in Canada. Yeah. 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 Wow. That's, yeah, that's amazing. So, and those tours, did you kind of do those like back to back, like, like year to year? I had had the, um, the Sunday tour. And then that summer, I actually played a regional theater in Sullivan, Illinois, and did four shows there. And then I got on the South Pacific tour. 
and the time in between the legs was a little bit longer because this same production company did Chicago. And so the Chicago tour was a six week tour where they brought the musicians back because the mus musicians they used for South Pacific, they used the same musicians for Chicago. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we were brought back six weeks early with a different acting company and we toured. And then at the end of those six weeks, then we rejoined the South Pacific cast and crew. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And that's an example, too, of how you get your foot in the door in one place and then it leads to other opportunities. Well, it was very interesting. One spring break, I went back and visited um, University of Northern Colorado and one of the faculties said, well, how did you get these tours? And I said, well, that's funny. You guys should be telling the students how to do this. <laughs> you know, and and right. it's really the classic who you know and networking working at your craft, being as good and prepared as you can be, and being ready to accept the opportunities as they come up. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. Wow. So you um, are married to a musician. Um, his name is Steve. So Steve Schiffer is a trombone player, um, a great trombone player uh, in our area. Um, and he is um, adjunct faculty at Millersville. Uh, university and uh, when did when did you meet him? Well, I love to tell people that I met Steve in a pit <laughs> because musicians get it right away. They know what that means, right? <laughs> For non-musician listeners, what that means is we were doing a musical production and uh, we met in a pit orchestra, and that musical production happened to be "Some Like It Hot," and it was at the Dutch Apple Dinner Theater. Uh so okay. yeah, the music director of Sunday in the Park with George invited me to join him for a few months at Dutch Apple while I was still trying to decide what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Uh, okay. So as far as I knew, I was going to play three shows with him at Dutch Apple and then I'd go do something else. Mm -hmm. And uh, I ended up sitting next to Steve in the pit and the rest is history. <laughs> oh, wow. So. Okay, so then when you met him, you weren't in, so Steve was in Pennsylvania. Yes. All right, but you were not. Like, well, I was passing through. Like, I, I had, had cat, cast housing. I was able to stay with the cast uh, that was working the show at that time. That was part of my arrangement coming in. Mm -hmm. you know, it's called being jobbed in. And it was partly because they were having trouble covering all the shows. There wasn't any one read player that could play all of the shows around here, so. Uh, they jobbed me in under the auspices of, that I would play at all of the shows. Right. Okay. And when was that? What year was that? That was 1995. Ah, okay. So then it was soon after that, then you stayed in Pennsylvania then, right? That's correct. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I came to actually move here where I actually had my own place on Valentine's Day of 1996. Aww. I flew in and I uh, flew into Baltimore and Steve came down, picked me up. And this is the cute part of the story. Uh, he brought me back home and he thought we were going to just go ahead and go to a nice restaurant that night. But it was Valentine's Day. He hadn't <laughs> made any reservations. <laughs> so we ended up at a pizza joint. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I well, just thought it was so charming that he didn't realize that you need to make reservations if you're taking somebody out on valentine's night 
but I'm sure like every Valentine's Day since then it has he has uh <laughs> changed his uh whatever real quick <laughs> oh, I, we need to release this on Valentine's Day I mean of course <laughs> <this episode. laughs> uh so uh, so then did you get married soon after that we were married in May of 1998. So this May yeah. it'll be our 25th wedding anniversary. Wow. Well, oh, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. That's so great. Wow. So, um, and you didn't have any reservations about marrying a brass player. I mean, did you take those three <laughs> years to like consider what you were doing? Well, it wasn't so much the brass player sentiment. I think it was just getting to know each other as people and right. really making sure that we wanted to make this commitment. Because mm -hmm. a lot of our friends um, have had difficulty in relationships and we just, um, we pretty much knew from the beginning that we wanted to be together, but we also wanted to make sure. Mm -hmm. and, uh, we also wanted to make sure we had our finances together. Yeah. It's not yeah. easy to be, I mean, it's not easy to be a working musician in the first place, but as far as, you know, your stability and schedule compared to most people's, but sometimes it can be really challenging to have two musicians in the house, um, you know, and the way your schedules balance and, and workload and all of those things. But we wouldn't have it any other way. Um, it's just, he just has to tell me very little about what he's going through. And I, I know because... I'm either going through it with them or I've gone through something similar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So do you, well, how do you maintain your relationship with conflicting schedules like that, actually? Because you're, I imagine that you're both often um, working in the evenings or, in, or teaching in the evenings, playing and that kind of thing, weekends. Our together time is usually very early in the morning mm -hmm. and we try to have lunch together as much as we can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, That gets harder once school has started, but when neither of us are in school, we can usually share lunch together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. So that flexibility. Yeah. And yeah. Um, we planned a trip to Williamsburg this May to celebrate our 25th because that's where we went for our honeymoon and we've already blocked it on the calendar. So unless there's this huge performing opportunity that comes up, uh, we're not available that day. Right. <laughs> Did it take you a while for you to establish yourself as a professional musician? Um, and it sounds like not. It sounds like you dove right in. Um, did you find it to be difficult when you moved to a completely different area um, when you came to Pennsylvania was as, at least as far as like the teaching is concerned, actually, um, performance wise, you it sounds like you had been playing at a few different places. Well, actually, no. Um, when I first came here, I did all the shows at the Dutch Apple. And um, when you get theater work, it's a two-edged sword because yes, you have all of this work, but you're not able to let contacts know that you're available for other things because you're really not. And so as a result of that, um, a lot of people didn't know that I was a performer in the area and they might not even know 
who I was and that sort of thing. So it really did take a while because um, I played at the Dutch Apple for a while and then I decided to move on and um, it was kind of like starting over, you know. Uh, I had worked with some musicians at Dutch Apple, but, um, you know, kind of just substitutes passing through. And, and of course, the regulars at that time knew who I was, but they were working at Dutch Apple. So they weren't getting a lot of other performing opportunities either. And uh, the way I got started teaching here was actually through Steve. Uh, he was teaching at an area music store and they were looking for a flute teacher. So I started with six flute students at the music store. And then after I had taught them for a while, I approached the owner of the store and I said, would you mind if I taught the clarinet and the saxophone as well? And at that point, they kind of had need for that sort of thing. So they said, sure. So um, that was how I built up my private practice was initially through the music store. And then um, we had, fleas in our basement and so we renovated our basement and we have his and hers private teaching studios in our home now so oh, okay <laughs> well that's great yeah it's great good coming from bad you know <laughs> right <laughs> exactly um so and is steve from this area then yes mm -hmm. okay. all right see fit i love learning all of this stuff that i didn't know about other other people <laughs> It's so cool getting to know that. So. As far as um, as jazz is concerned, because that's that seems to be a, a lot of what you do performance wise. And, like, did you did you find that difficult to learn how to like improvise? Well, I think it's like any aspect of music. Um, as long as you're open to being a student, there's always opportunity for you to learn. Uh, I like to believe I'm continuing to learn. Uh, about all aspects of music. Uh, you know, I even encourage my students who are studying classically with me, if they have a piece that they want to study that I'm not familiar with, I'm happy to learn it right along with them. Yeah. So um, I was fortunate in my uh, high school training, my college training, I had uh, all sorts of experiences where I performed in jazz ensembles and I did get some chances to take some jazz lessons and some improv lessons. But I've also pursued uh, improv study as an adult. And, um, you know, it's there's some things that you need to understand in sort of a lesson format. And then there's just the practical application. Like every time I have a gig, I feel like I'm learning more about how to play the tunes that we're playing. So uh -huh. And I'm sure you learn a lot from the people that you are playing with as well. Very much. Very much. Um, when I work with uh, Tom Ponce and Bruce Campbell, they have years and years of expertise and uh, they're so kind with me and I, I really appreciate uh, working with them. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you, and you actually um, have at least one recording with them, correct? That's correct. Yes. Horsing around. Horsing around. Horsing around. And that's because the band uh, is the house band at the Horse Inn. And that's a restaurant in Lancaster. Mm -hmm. I, oh, I'm sorry. Tell, say when you play there. I'm just going to say they play there every Tuesday and Saturday. And uh, I did play with them every Tuesday and Saturday before the pandemic. But now since the pandemic, I'm there on select dates. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
That's one of my favorite spots in Lancaster. My husband and I love to go there. And our first house in Lancaster was on Fulton Street, which is the street the Horse Inn is on. Um, and so I've heard you play there lots of times. <laughs> one of the things that we loved about it was that there was jazz, yeah. you know, a couple of nights a week. So, um... <laughs> and there's the cat. Yeah, well, so, so much for the cat's not caring what I'm doing. <laughs> This is, this was my life during the pandemic. You know, it was like every meeting I had, there was like a cat in the screen <laughs> right at the worst moment. But sure. at any rate, oh, <laughs> I think, I think you're, what you said about, you know, learning from other people. Um, it's so relevant because it doesn't jazz or not. I mean, I think that was a big thing for me when I moved here and started freelancing and I was playing with so many really excellent players all the time. I learned so much from that experience, if you're lucky enough to get to do it, I think you become so much better just by maintaining that student mind, that learner, you know, mentality that there's always something to learn. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and it can be in any genre or any situation, you know, whether you're uh, playing with an orchestra or you're in a chamber ensemble or you're, you know, you're having a lesson with a student and the student teaches you something. Yeah. Like, wow, I haven't thought of it that way. Or, oh, I didn't know that about that composer. Or, you know, wow, you know what? That's a pretty cool trick you're doing when you play that section. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah. Or patience. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they teach you patience. You know, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so um, how many recordings have you done? So you did one with um, Tom, the Tom Pons Project. Um, what else have you done? Uh, I also have an album out with a group called The Cat's Pajamas. And um, we did it. It's called That's the Cats. And um, it's uh, basically uh, traditional jazz, New Orleans influence. But the fun thing about that album is we also like to retrofit more contemporary pieces into sort of a traditional jazz setting. Like, for example, um, the wham, careless whisper. We take that song and we turn it into Dixieland. You know? <laughs> it's just, yeah, some kind of fun. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah. And I was part of a band um, back in the late 90s. It was called Pride of the Susquehanna, and it was basically like a Sousa band or concert band. And we did uh, a live recording called Pride Marches Live. And the fun thing about that recording was uh, after we played that concert, that was the night that Steve proposed to me. So I have a recording from oh. the day that we were playing before we got engaged. That's wow. So cool. Yeah. Very cool. That is so cool. Yeah. Aw. Th these recordings can be found. I know they can be found on YouTube. Um, are there other places that they can be found? I would think if you went to CD Baby, you could probably pick them up there. Mm -hmm. Okay, gotcha. And if you do go to the Horse Inn, Bruce probably has a couple of copies of Horsing Around lying around in the Horse Inn. So you could always just walk up to the bass player and say, hey, I'd like a CD. Uh -huh. Well, I imagine that. <laughs> but he'd, he'd sell you one. Yeah. <laughs> well, that probably happens, though, I imagine that, you know, people love the music and want to and ask you about it. Well, and I think it happens most is when people are bringing people, you know, friends from outside of the area, like they're kind of showing off Lancaster and people want a memento from that evening. Mm -hmm. And that's something that's definitely unique uh, to to Lancaster and the fact that you guys are the house band and people can kind of like rely on that 
mm -hmm. know where to find you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, how difficult or easy is it to balance all that you are doing? Because now you are also adjunct professor at um, Elizabethtown College uh, of clarinet and saxophone, correct? Right. Um, so you have that, you have your private students, and you have all of the, the gigging that you do, um, whether it's, you know, musicals or at theaters. Um, so how do you manage your schedule? Well, I think it's accepting that sometimes you are going to be out of balance, mm -hmm. meaning uh, you might have to eat your dinner in your car mm -hmm. as you're driving to the gig. Mm -hmm. Or you might have to ask your students to move to a different time because you have a rehearsal or you need that time for drive time. Or you're going to get a little less sleep because you're getting in late from a rehearsal or a show that night and the next day you've got to be at school teaching. Mm -hmm. you know? But I think the main thing is, is if you're having a busy time that you make sure that you make time for yourself after the busy time to recuperate. Mm -hmm. Uh, you can't run this incredible schedule where you're working a 70 hour work week forever. You know? and it's, it's physically demanding as well as mentally um, mm -hmm. stressful. Yeah. Yeah. And we are human beings after all. So, you know, um, just having time to relax and not think about all of these things that are job related or having family time or having personal time, you know, and I think sometimes, um, especially if you're a successful musician in this area, you're going to have times where you're not able to give attention to all of those things for a short interval of time. But hopefully, once that busy period is over, then you can balance it out by maybe not having quite so much work for a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. Right. And you, you have to plan that I too. Yeah. yeah. So what do you do to relax? I like to garden when the weather's nice. We have a um, small vegetable garden out in the backyard and, you know, I grow tomatoes and herbs and cucumbers and I like to can. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't grow strawberries, but when the local strawberries come in season, uh, I like to make Steve a big batch of strawberry jam. He enjoys that. So I enjoy those activities. I I like walking, you know, mm -hmm. going to different places. Uh, I was doing Planet Fitness a lot uh, before the pandemic, and it's just been hard for me to get back just because my schedule has changed. And it's, yeah. it's not that I don't want to go back to the gym, but it's just trying to figure out, well, when could I do that and not be so exhausted that I can't do the other stuff that I want to do right. or that I need to do. Uh -huh. But uh, I enjoy doing those things, and um, I am into napping. Yeah. Any day I can, after lunch, I like to take a nap because yeah. I just find that I have my morning things that I need to get accomplished. Um, when Steve and I can, we eat a larger meal in the middle of the day, yeah. and I take my nap, and then I'm ready for my afternoon and evening activities. Yeah. So. Even if it's only 20 minutes, like as far as a nap, like you don't like, you know, go all out for like two hours or something, but I don't know, that can be really beneficial. <laughs> yeah. I think this is really like some of the most 
practical advice we've heard about sustainability, you know, like really listening to yourself and, and knowing that you can't do everything all the time, but like not feeling our schedule is always going to be a little different than everybody else's. And so not feeling funny about, you know, I need a 20 minute nap so that I can teach in the evening or I need, you know, some time in the garden in the morning so I can focus in the, in, in, on the other things I have to do. Um, and I can remember taking a masterclass one time and somebody asked the instructor, you know, what, something about balance. And they said, well, they're just, that's a myth. You know, you don't, there is no such thing as having it perfectly balanced. The balance is that you go with the flow and you offset things when you need to. And um, I think that's what you're describing. Well, and I think it's also just letting go of guilt. Mm -hmm. you know, um, oftentimes we'll be doing something and we feel guilty that we're doing something. Mm -hmm. I feel guilty that I'm playing Candy Crush on the iPad. Yes. I should be <laughs> practicing, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, maybe if I just allow myself to play that 15 minutes of Candy Crush, I'm going to be more open and energetic towards practicing. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And I think we just, we guilt ourselves to death. Absolutely. Yeah. No matter what we're doing, it's like, it's the wrong thing to be doing. And it's like, how can that be? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's, yeah. Going along with, uh, you know, just like beating yourself up over things that you don't need to be beating yourself up over <laughs> and it's not necessary. Well, yeah. and we really can find a way to put a, a guilty, you know, a verdict on most things. Like if I gotten into the habit of reading while I eat my lunch, so I'm taking a break and I'm reading whatever book I'm reading for 10 or 15 minutes, but then I feel guilty about it because I'm reading in the middle of the day. <laughs> but before that I was on my phone while I was eating lunch and I felt guilty about that. So <laughs> yeah, there's always a way to sort of, um, you have to exercise some, you know, introspection, not to do that to yourself. <laughs> I think it's trusting that you're making the right choice with the time that you have available. Mm -hmm. right. And if you're not making the right choice, knowing that you can change that choice. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You had shared with us also that you recently have taken up pottery. Um, and oh, do you have a visual? Oh, oh my gosh. Nice. I love that. That's beautiful. <laughs> so how long, when did you start that? I started that in January of 2020. So it was pre-pandemic. Mm -hmm. A lot of people go, oh, well, I ended up doing this huge thing because of the pandemic. But what I will say is that the pandemic afforded me more time to go yeah. more in depth with it. Mm -hmm. you know, so that now I'm at a point where, um, you know, I can do more with it with less time. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah. yeah. And I'm still spending a good amount of time with it, but. Um, do, you, do you go to a studio? Yes. I, um, I'm part of the Inspire Pottery Studio, and that's in Northern Lancaster County. And uh, it's just a wonderful community of people. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so do you go to actual classes or do you like get lessons or uh, I was going to class but class is uh during a time that I'm teaching at E-Town so I can't do class right now but um you know the person who runs the studio's name is Joel and uh, Joel is my teacher and Joel is willing to help with anything any question any problem you know he's there mm -hmm. yep. 
So uh, I'm not saying I'm taking full out private lessons, but it's just if I have a question or a concern or he's watching me throw and has a suggestion. Yeah, kind of like a mentor yeah. in a way. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And I imagine that, I mean, that must be like therapeutic in, in some way too. Uh, when it's going well. Well, that's true. <laughs> Right. It's kind of like when you're practicing and you're getting it and yeah. you're practicing and you're not getting it. That's kind of what pottery is like when you're not getting it. That's pretty much exactly how you feel. Right. <laughs> you got it the day before and then you can't do it the next day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. So some days are good days and some days are just learning days. Okay. Yeah. I just had this romantic vision of just, you know, working with a pottery wheel and everything going well, I guess. <laughs> and that doesn't always happen. No. It's like anything else. It's just, you have to have that consistency of continued determined effort mm -hmm. wow. and you will see improvement, but, um, you know, for some people it's slower than others. So yeah. mm -hmm. lots of parallels with music in that it's definitely taught me how to become a student again and appreciate the student's position as a musician, yeah. you know, because mm -hmm. when you do music for such a long time, you forget how hard it is in yeah. the beginning. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. like, well, why can't you just do this? <laughs> you don't know how. You can't. It's not time yet. You know, all all that good stuff. Yeah, it's so good for us to do that. You know, to have something that we do that's outside of, especially when you're in a creative field, and then you have something outside of that, like you said, that reminds you how to be a student, but also like remind you of the value of that process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've never forgotten how hard the oboe is, so <laughs> I don't have that. <laughs> I'm good. So. I, I would never golf because I would be so incredibly frustrated with that. Uh -huh. yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, choose your activities wisely, right? <laughs> yeah, there's some things you just know to stay away from. Well, at this point of your career, I, I mean, have your goals changed from when you started out as a professional musician to what they are now and if so like how did they change oh i'd say they changed considerably because when i started out it was all about me mm -hmm. how good can i be and how many people can notice how good i am and how can i get better so that even more people think i'm great and you know, ego, 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 ego. And uh, there are a lot of musicians that um, are my age that still, that's how they go. It's just the ego is driving the whole process. And in a way you're being cheated because you're not truly appreciating what this art form offers, not only to ourselves, but what it offers when we share it with others. Mm -hmm. And whether you're teaching it or you're performing it, um, it's just become so much more about the sharing of this beautiful art that I, I want to pass on to others. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so my goals have become a lot more service oriented as opposed to just self-fulfilling. You know, I'm not going to lie. It's, it's really nice when someone says, you sound great. Yeah. yeah. That's, we all love to be complimented, mm -hmm. but I don't think that that can be the only reason that you're doing this because it's going to feel hollow and shallow after a while. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're only being fulfilled by other people's opinions, 
uh, it's a pretty precarious position. So um, I've really uh, turned around my thinking about it's about the music. And it's just about how, wow, let me play you this really cool piece, not just because I'm playing it, but because it's a cool piece. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. It's kind of like when you're eating something really good at a restaurant and you want to share it with the person that you're with. It's <laughs> so good, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I feel that a lot, um, especially when I perform at like retirement villages and, and those kinds of places um because they are often you know people who certainly like really appreciate you know the music and all that goes into it and 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 the final product and um and yeah it's just really great to hear that from people like how it made them feel when they when they listened well and that's what's neat is that uh, in addition to any compliments usually those folks want to exchange a story with you yes because you told them a musical story so then they want to tell you one of their stories yeah. and it might have to do with that they have a grandson who plays the clarinet or their grandmother played the oboe or just remembering hearing recordings of music that's similar to the type of music that you're doing. But anything, it helps them to apply it to their life and they're showing their appreciation by sharing their story with you. Mm -hmm. that's, that's really valuable. When we have human connection, that's what I feel like it's all about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That is the, and that's the beauty of, of music is the connection. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And doing this right here, <laughs> lots well, was, of you know good connection. Yeah, I was thinking yeah. that you know this is called the life between the notes, right? Yeah. Well, anytime you go to a college lesson, the emphasis is often placed on what happens between the notes. Mm -hmm. Well, what happens between the notes is support, mm -hmm. and that's what we're doing right now. We're supporting one another. Yeah, musicians. Right. Beautiful, and I applaud you both for putting this together and and having this community. Thank you. Welcome. <laughs> I, we love doing this. Yeah, yeah. And I think you know, like you said about thinking about service oriented, you're sharing something really special with people. That's the goal. Um, but I think that if I feel really like nervous in a rehearsal or something, I'm folk. I start to try to focus on communicating with the people around me, you know, and, and then what you're doing together and that everyone's doing it together. And you focus on that sort of communication um, and that builds comfort. And I think that that is what both of us have experienced doing this is um, we don't often have this time, even though we work with some of these people all the time, or we see them peripherally to really talk about what we do and what it means. And, um, and it, it, has been really rewarding to hear everyone's stories and very encouraging to hear how everyone has sort of found a way to make it work um, and what the value is that they find in, in our work. Thank you so much, Faith, um, for your time and, and for doing this. Um, you know, and I was, I was listening to some of the, the recordings that you sent and, oh my goodness, you're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. And yeah, and jazz is not something that is one of my things. And I just have like, I have so much respect for people who yeah. um, can can do it. 
Yeah, well, I often tell people that good music is good music. Mm -hmm. and you both play wonderfully good music. So I'm just so glad we can all appreciate one another. Absolutely, yeah. So thank you so much for your time. Um, it's It's been great and we're so glad you, you could join us. And um, we also want to thank our listeners. Um, we're so glad that you're out there supporting us. Um, this has been a lot of fun for Morgan and I, as we just said, um, and especially to get to know our colleagues a bit better. And we hope you're enjoying these conversations. And if you, our listeners, have any questions or suggestions as to who you might enjoy an interview of, or if you would like to sponsor any of our episodes, we have lots of musicians and students and musicians listening in. So please contact us at lifebetweenthenotes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and video versions can be found on our Life Between the Notes YouTube channel. And you can follow us at all of these places and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. So with that, um, have a great day. And thank you, Morgan. And thank you, Faith. Mm -hmm.